0: inner voice
1: a heartfelt chat with dr Fujian. hello everyone welcome to the inner voice show i'm dr Fujian zane i'm a psychotherapist author and an originator of the awareness integration theory hello to sean in uh, our director in our studio this is a show about what matters most in our life, our mind, thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. Today, I will share the tip of the week with you about regenerating love in your relationships. Then I will bring you Dr. Kamir Alai. He is a global health policy expert who has been working in conservative social setting for two decades. He has been the co-president of the Institute for International Health and Education, working in several countries in the Middle East and Central Asia. He studied medicine, epidemiology, international health and health policy, and international human rights laws. Um, And um, he has from the prestigious universities such as Harvard and Oxford. Today, we will be talking about COVID-19 vaccination, the latest news, and blasting some of those myths. Then I will bring you Mary Hagelin, the professor emerita at Santa Clara University, which for the past 31 years has been teaching social cultural anthropology, women and gender studies, and Middle East studies. She is a researcher and an author. Today, we will be speaking about the ever-changing dynamic of the institution of marriage around the world. But first, here's the tip of the week. You could just wake up one day, reach across your nightstand, and hit the Life Reset button. Let's face it. The struggles and frustrations of everyday life leave millions of women and men around the globe yearning for a new way. And the new way is right here in Life Reset, the awareness integration path to create the life you want by Dr. Foujan Zane. You can get it now at fujon.com or Amazon.com. Life Reset the awareness integration path to create the life you want. You deserve it. Dr. Pujan, and this is the tip of the week. Exploring the idea of regenerating love in our relationship. Why would we need to regenerate love? If we already love someone, wouldn't it just be enough and it will continue the way it is? So first let's define love. Webster says it's an intense feeling of deep affection. Wikipedia says love encompasses a range of strong and positive emotional and mental state from the most sublime virtue or good habit, the deepest interpersonal affection to the simplest pleasure. I would add the unconditional acceptance of the person as they are and wanting the best for that person. Most people get into a relationship with high hopes and high level of faith and vision to be in love, to offer their best and see the best in the other person. As time passes, they get to know each other and begin to like or dislike parts of other person's character or behaviors. They may start focusing on someone's negative character in order to change it. When communication is healthy and they hold the highest respect for their own and their uh, mates' needs and desires, they will commit to actions and behaviors and will create happiness and fulfillment within their relationship. The relationship can move into an unhealthy stage where people only think of themselves and want to fulfill their own need versus looking at the bigger picture of the us and work and what works for the us nor just me. When this way of being continues, then love, giving, acceptance, compassion, and empathy begins to subside. People retrieve to their own corners and survive the relationship versus relating and loving with joy. Love becomes a habitual, ritualistic, or an obligatory concept versus a generative one. I keep hearing I love him, but just don't like him anymore. Or I love her, she's the mother of my children, but just don't want to live that way. There's also the taking it all for granted stage, which could happen to any relationship when someone loses their appreciation and gratitude for every act of kindness that is offered. When acts of kindness become routine, a sense of entitlement begins and emerge And unfortunately, they forget that it's all a voluntary gift and it can be taken away any minute. If the focus is lifted from appreciating the goodness of what is towards counting all that is lacking, love suffers and gives way to resentment and anger. So what is generating and regenerating love? It is when you foster the intense affection within you and give it as a gift to your mate, your friend, to the family. Some people only know how to reciprocate love when it is offered to them and don't know how to generate love inside without the trigger of someone loving them first. When it comes to your mate, since you would have to share most areas of your life and make major decisions with each other, this gift of acceptance and giving becomes of the utmost importance. Allowing yourself to share all of you and your mate and offer an allowance for your mate to be who they are with you. Come from all is great with who your mate is, even when you don't like a behavior. Negotiating corrective action on behaviors can be done much graciously when there's no threat to your mate's identity and character. Make who they are bad and wrong that they will defend who they are and their behavior. So generating love means filling yourself with love and acceptance and joy and then offering it to others. Every human being's nature is capable of experiencing love and sharing it. If someone holds you back from experiencing love, then you need to clear it so that you can experience the highest pleasure of life. For creating awareness in your life about how you foster, generate, give, or receive love, go to my book, Life Reset, The Awareness Integration Path to create the life you want. Welcome everyone, I'm Dr. Fuzhan Zain and I am excited to have Dr. Kamyar Elayi with me. He is a global health policy expert who's been working in the conservative social setting for two decades. He has been the co-president of the Institute for International Health and Education working in several countries in the Middle East and Central Asia. Um, He studied medicine and epidemiology, internal health uh, and health policies and international human rights law at prestigious universities, such as Harvard and Oxford. And uh, with his brother, he co-founded the first triangular Clinic for three target groups in drug users, HIV patients, and STD cases, which was documented by the World Health Organization as the best practice model. It is a joy to have you with us, Dr. Eli.
2: Thank you very much for having me here.
1: Of course. So I wanted to ask you about the latest uh, news that you would have about the COVID-19 and vaccination and all that's out there at this time. Could you share a bit with us?
2: Sure. You know, as you know, why we have some countries like U.S. or other developed countries, they are very focused on increasing the coverage for vaccination. Still, we have a lot of Underdeveloped or developing countries that they haven't still received a single dose of vaccine, and this is really a shame that there's a huge you know a, a, a disparity among those countries. And as you know, that even we are able to reach out to 85 percent of herd immunity in you know developed countries, including United States. As long as we can't increase the coverage of immunization in those developing countries. We may increase the risk of mutations. And if we have new mutations, and if some of those who are carrying those uh, mutation viruses they enter to the US, so then we will have the same issues that we had a year ago. So that was the, you know, the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations just had a few days ago announcement that really it's not a good that we have still a lot of countries that they don't have any you know, uh, plan of you know, vaccination. And as you know, this is a part of the social responsibility of developed countries that at the same time that they have to have a, the national interest, they, they have some international obligation based on international laws. And I think there should be a more a cooperation between countries and even when we look at U- European unions, still there are con- countries that they are competing with each others, and Europe with UK, and there's a lot of debates, you know, and as you know, r- regarding AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, how they make sure they have access. So that will be one angle. And the other angle, there are, you know, pharmaceutical companies that initially they had a promises, but over the time they couldn't make it and they asked to have some delay in the process to you know, revisit the logistics to make sure they provide those vaccines, because traditionally the only main focus was to produce vaccines, not to deliver. But now they are in charge of you know, producing and delivering at the same time, so it will be really a uh, challenging for them. And also there should be more cooperation between some you know, countries like China that they had you know, original source of virus, Or Russia, that they have different type of vaccines with other developed countries to see how they can exchange their ideas, and maybe they have more effective, you know, vaccines. So this is a kind of debate. And as you know, over the past few months, we had a lot of mutations. Back in September, we had in the UK, and that you know the uh, the uh, the the, the chance of exposure was increased up to seventy percent. And also we had mutation in other countries like Japan, we had in Brazil, and we had in South Africa that the the existing vaccines that we have, as you know, some of them are, you know, approved by the World Health Organization, including Pfizer, you know, Moderna, AstraZeneca. So uh, they may not be able to cover, you know, that mutation that we have in South Africa. So there's a kind of suggestion, maybe we need an additional dose of vaccine that Moderna is working on that to make sure they are, you know, covering that mutation. But this is a chance, as you know, that the virus has 30,000 genomes, and every month there's a mutation in one of those genomes. So initially those uh, genomes that they were in charge of, you know, major functional virus were not impacted, but over the time we see that they are getting impacted, and if in the future we have a major change in some of those key genomes, we may have new mutations that they are not protected by these vaccines. So this is the main, you know, debates that we have. And also, as you heard, you know, initially we had some, you know, reports of side effects of AstraZeneca for, you know, blood clotting, especially for younger population, you know, especially among women, you know, there was a study that it, more than, you know, among more than 60, you know, 8 million people who got vaccination, more than 2,900, they got, you know, this kind of, you know, uh, uh, clotting in their bloods uh, but uh, they realized this is a unique part that we had for some uh, cases that used to be induced by heparin they called heparin induced you know uh, 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 itp that they need a special management and those people who get those type of you know uh, side effects, they have to be under in you know, a special you know consideration and we had similar Side effect for uh, Johnson and Johnson. There are more than 6.8 million uh, population. They received Johnson and Johnson. Out of them six, they got this side effect, and one of them unfortunately died. So that was a kind of a, a requirement to have more, you know, attention to see who gets, you know, this kind of side effect. And based on the report that we have, most of them are women and are in, under age of 30 years old. So means. Maybe they recommend if uh, people have more options it's not to have Johnson & Johnson as a first choice of you know options for those who are female under age of 30. But generally speaking, when we look at the cost benefit and cost effective you know, analysis, definitely it's very, very important to have vaccine rather than not to have vaccine because you know every day there are thousands of people. Uh, They died due to COVID-19, but when we see out of 6 million, just six people got side Africa and one died due to Johnson & Johnson, so it's one per 6 million population mortality, it's really very low risk, and definitely the vaccine is very effective, why do we know that? Uh,
1: Dr. Alai, with all of the uh, information that is being blasted, uh, with the news and all of it, we're still finding, um, I'm still coming across a lot of people who are uh, very educated. They are, um, you know, they they read, they listen, they, uh, they look at different things. They utilize the best of what is in the world, but still when it comes to vaccination, especially the ones that have contracted COVID-19 and in their body, it did not react in a very harsh way. And therefore it's um, almost like a minimization of it, which is like, I got it, there was a problem. It was even less than a flu. My whole family got it, no problem. This is just the big hype and it's just people trying to make money and um, and all of that. So we still find uh, with all of the information out there that there's this type of a conversation that is showing up um, and also the, the, the conversation that um, if I got it and it didn't matter, you know, it, it wasn't that detrimental. So what? Why should I put a vaccine? Maybe I can, you know, e- um, even if I contract it again, it's like a flu. We used to get a flu every year. So what? Nothing is going to happen. So I'm not going to put myself in a position of get putting something in my body, which I have no idea what's going to happen. And if it's just for my protection and uh, it's not that I won't get it and give it to anybody. So if it's my protection, I choose not to. What are you what are your thoughts about that way of thinking and how does that way of thinking affect more the community at large and the global aspect of this
2: Sure you know I completely understand those you know personal individual you know limited experiences but the point is that we cannot generalize you know those you know uh, personal experiences and we look at data you know this data is facts and there are more than hundreds of millions they got infected and more than three million they died due to COVID, so this is the fact. So this means that if I'm not careful, so I may get infected and even I don't get a severe disease, I may transmit the virus to my parents or the grandparents or my family members that they have chronic conditions and put their life in danger. So this is an irresponsibility that to be careless about this virus. And uh, this is uh, very important to consider that the main uh, the main goal of vaccine is not to die due to virus. So it's very important. Means if I get you know vaccinated, this is up to one hundred percent protection against mortality. Which means yes, definitely I may get asymptomatics. Forty percent of people get asymptomatics, even they don't realize that they got infected. But for those that they got symptomatics, then 10% they get admitted to hospitals and 1% they get admitted to ICU. They need intensive care. And we have a you know, high uh, uh, rate of mortality among those who are over age of 65 years old. So this is old fact. This is not just back January 2020. This is you know, April 2021 that we have a lot of data. And this is not just one data. We have a lot of countries they reported and they got you know verified by the united Nations, by johns hopkins university among other top universities so this is really the fact and uh, what we say is you know how we can protect ourselves similar to you know car insurance yes so the likelihood to have a you know, car accident in a year maybe is very low but should they have no you know car insurance because I had like one individual experience, and that was not a, a significant damage. You never know. So this is all, I think, a, 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 some a controversy due to limited knowledge about the real facts. And I think the more we educate people, it will be less, you know, a controversy about these, you know, things, which is very very serious.
1: Absolutely, um, you you had talked a little bit about the conversation of. Uh, whether Moderna is gonna create the third vaccine or is, is a third vaccine uh, uh, something that is, go, it's gonna be natural as we go along. And then for example, after maybe four to six months that you have utilized the first and the second vaccine, that would be a norm that's coming for the third vaccine. And then after that, I heard that they're recommending uh, a yearly um, vac- vaccination for COVID as we go along. What are your thoughts
2: about that? Sure, these are two different things. So one of them is the third dose, not the third vaccine, the third dose of, you know, vaccination for those who are in South Africa or they got not everywhere. Not not everywhere, or they got exposed. So means this is still premature that we can generalize to other countries. But this is the plan that they are thinking for that. And the good thing is that the mechanism is based on messenger RNA, which means within a few weeks, they can just recoding the, you know, the, uh, the genome to have a new messenger RNA to cover those mutations. So this is that, that point. And the, the, the other thing is that those who got infected, so the question is that whether after infection they may get reinfected or not, we know that we have a small proportion of population that they get reinfected at least maybe after three months. I Means during the first three months, they have a, a certain level of immunity. But after that, so we don't know what proportion of them, they will keep that level of immunity, maybe after six months or nine months. So this is recommended that if you got previous you know, exposure to COVID-19 and that's passed more than three months, so that you are recommended to get vaccinated. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that, after the getting the second dose of vaccine for pfizer or moderna or just after you know uh, the single dose of you know johnson and johnson how long does it take so there are some studies they say at least 9 months so we don't have that duration because you know that the vaccine started less than a year so see really how long does it take but definitely it may be more likely that after one year they may recommend to have the just you know follow up you know uh, additional dose but there's no protocol for now right now only the focus is how we can have more percentage of population to get vaccinated in a shorter period of time and there are some countries they have their own unique approach rather than to have every individual person to get two doses of vaccine within two or three weeks to get everybody to get the first dose because the first dose get up to 70% you know, protection, and then for the second dose, so they have a longer period of time. So by this way, in a short run, you have the you know, high risk and vulnerable population to get protected up to 70%, then in the long run, they get the second dose to have increased their you know, protection level.
1: Can you also open this myth that because it's mRNA, and then it is stated that it's gonna change the genome, so a lot of uh people also have the fear just because they hear the change of genetics and the genome they have this fear that it's going to also change uh the genetics of the human being that you know as it as the vaccine goes into our body it's also ch- sending a messenger to change our genes not just the virus's gene can you open this myth please
2: I think this is a misunderstanding that when we say genome is not to change genome of humans' bodies, this is recoding that messenger RNA. So the job of that messenger RNA is to produce the spike protein, which is an antigen that this virus COVID-19 has on the surface of its uh, body. So means rather than to give a, a person exposed to a real virus, to have just that piece of, you know, a spike in a protein to be produced means that will be very easy for the body to get response to that, you know, a spike protein. So, means within a few days, so we have an immune response, and that person gets, gets protected without any, you know, a, a exposure to the body. So, there's no changing of, you know, human's genome. So, this is completely misunderstanding.
0: In one
1: of your other talks, I also heard this, so I just want to reiterate it, um, that um, it's important for people to cooperate and go through this, not only for themselves, but globally to be able to have this cooperation, or if we don't meet some of these standards and um, uh, thresholds that, that we need to do, that many of what we've done already would be obsolete. So it is important for each person uh, to be part of the responsible party to do this for, for the world, not only for their personal aspect, but their responsibility about the world. Because if we don't meet those standards, that as you said, this thing will just keep continuing because the, the, the way that the medical field has planned for a goal and how to eradicate this like any other illness has a plan which takes people to cooperate to create that. Yes.
2: Yeah, so exactly to give you a very just simple example is like air, pop, air, air pollution, yes. So if I am very careful about my, you know, air but somebody else, someone else just, done, so they don't care about the air. So they get the air polluted so I could expose. So this is very similar, means that if I get my vaccines, but there are other people, they don't get vaccinated, so then they get exposed to that virus. And as we know, every month, the virus get mutated. And then they may get the new mutation of virus, which will be serious, that maybe put my body at greater risk that even that you know my body got you know, protected by existing vaccine, but this existing vaccine cannot protect me against these new mutations. So it's very important, as you mentioned, to have more cooperation and partnership to make sure at least 85% of population get vaccinated or get you know exposed, and that should be recent exposed, so that they call it herd immunity, with the hope that we can manage the outbreak in, a, in, a, in, in that duration. So, and if we can't do that, and as you know, unfortunately, there's a kind of lack of uh, equity or even equality. So we have African American that they are at greater risk for COVID, they got three times greater than white population or Latinos, they got two times greater. But if we look at even the population who got vaccinated, they are in a, a less uh, a group who got uh, vaccinated compared to white even in California. So definitely there's a huge disparity. So it means why they are more vulnerable. So they get less vaccinated. So it may be due to lack of education or lack of access or a lot of other things. So it means we have to you know provide more proactive approach to educate them. And uh, so by this way to make sure they get the same coverage.
1: Um last question and if we could handle it in one minute, which I this, I think this is also important, which is the community that um Takes care of their body. They're maybe vegan. They take care. They don't have any kind of pollutant around them. They're very cautious about what they put in their body. Uh, They live in a chemical free life. And uh, they do all of this in order to say, you know, my immunity is high and I'm going to keep my immunity high based on, um, you know, the way that I eat and exercise and all of that. And therefore, I don't need vaccination. Um, Any I thought
2: about that. So it's a, a brilliant, I think, you know, point that you raised that the challenge we have with COVID-19 is not that those who have a, a poor immune uh, system, they get w- worse because the challenge is not the direct impact of virus on the body. It's the overreaction of immune response after a few days that the person get infected. So it means we don't know who get overreaction to those, you know, virus. So means even a person has a perfect, you know, immune response, maybe they get overreacted. This is like allergy, you know, we don't know why they get some people, they got, you know, uh, inflammatory diseases due to overreaction of, you know, allergy. So this is the challenge. So means there's no, you know, a direct, you know, the correlation that if you have a poor immune response, you should have, the, a worse health outcome and vice versa. So this is very important not to put our life in danger with something that we are not know exactly about all those details.
1: Any last message for our audience about- So
2: I, I highly recommend that regardless of if you got vaccinated or not, keep the physical distance and wear at least two in the masks. And so, uh, continue what you did you know, over the past year. So don't you know reduce the the bar of you know protection for yourself and your family. Still, we are in the middle of the crisis, and still we have more coming. So I I hope everybody get protected, and I hope we can overcome this global challenge soon.
1: Thank you so much for the time that you've allowed us, and um, I hope that everybody uh, received the information with with their high heart and mind and do what's the right for them. Thank you Dr. Light.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujian Sain and I am so excited to have Mary Lane Hagelin with us. She's the Professor Emeritus at Santa Clara University. For the past 31 years, she's been teaching Social Culture anthropo- and Anthropology, Women and Gender Studies, and Middle Eastern Studies. She's published many articles based on her participation and observation field work. and she is the author of Days of Revolution, Political Unrest in the Iranian Village, which was published in 2014. Mary has lived and worked in Iran for periods of, from 1966, including three years of field research in Aliabad, which is near Shiraz, um, and her publications have focused on women, gender and family revolution, politics and religion, Um, So I am so excited to have her with me, Um, and part of the reason I got to be with her today also is that she has uh, contributed an amazing chapter in the uh, latest book that is out for all of you to get, which is The Iranian Romance in the Digital Age from Arranged Marriages to White Marriages, which is uh, written and edited, actually, by uh, Dr. Janet Afari and
0: Jocelyn Foss. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Zaini. I'm very honored to be with you and very happy to have this opportunity to talk about what interests me so much. Oh, it is beautiful to have you.
1: And I know that with your 31 years of work, not only that your interest has been Middle East, so you've been to Iran, you've worked with, uh, um, you know, women in Pakistan, but you also have, um, you know, a lot of uh, great knowledge about the Western world and the Eastern world and Middle East. And kind of the conversation of how our marriages are changing, uh, the rules are changing, the way that we choose marriage, you know, cho- a marriage partner is changing, the construct of what we expect in a relationship, which is called a marriage is changing so much. And there's so many varieties that are there. And um, I just wanted you to share with us what you see, what you see is changing. And um, do you see the change kind of like kind of globally, although each culture has its own nuances that are, you know, beautiful for that culture?
0: Yes. Uh, Well, one thing that's so... That's a little different between Iranian marriage changes and Middle Eastern marriage changes, is the speed and Western change, is the speed with which it's taken place. I mean, in the Western world, marriage has been changing slowly and gradually over centuries. And in Iran, it's more over decades. And so the changes are so much more startling and perhaps cause a lot more conflict, although there's plenty of conflict about marriage over the centuries in the Western world, Uh, but It's really dramatic what's going on in Iran, and I've been very privileged to see some of these changes because I first went to Iran in 1966 I lived in Mahabad I was teaching English. Um, as the second language in Mahabad, And then I started my anthropological field research for my dissertation in the little village. It was then a village near Shiraz, which I call Aliabad. You know, we anthropologists have to be very careful to not reveal people's names. We have to be very respectful of privacy for Various reasons. So I went to Aliabad in 1978. And in 1978, Aliabad was in the midst of changing from an agricultural community uh, with sharecroppers by the very large uh, own, and it was owned before land reform by the very large landowners Gavang, who were so powerful, especially in the south, and the. the the standards of living were so low, so low. And marriage was basically, it had to be a partnership uh, because for procreation, uh, for women's work, uh, men had to had to be married so it was a partnership and arranged of course by the families. One of my uh, friends told me that he um, he was away on his military and his father wrote to him and enclosed a picture and said we found a, a wife for you and he said, Uh, You know, yes, of course. And so they were arranged. And, uh, uh, you know, personal liking and that sort of thing had nothing to do with it. And basically, um, people got what what they were given. Um, and, uh, you know, arrangements for marriage were quite easy. Maybe the bride's uh, father uh, provided a, a few pots and pans, uh, maybe a little uh, woven rug, but and, and a few clothes for the bride. So that the expectations were, were, were low. And then the bride went to live in the groom's Family's house and and worked under under his mother, um, and marriage was was quite at a young age. I mean, uh, you know, the grandparents, uh, girls were married maybe when they were twelve. Uh, you know, people my age, uh, seventy six, maybe when they were married when they were fourteen, and so it was married very early, and you got what you were given. And you just could be happy if your uh, husband was kind to you, Uh, you were felt you were lucky. I mean, it had nothing to do with deep companionship or, or romance or, or falling in love, you know, that just wasn't part of it. It wasn't expected. And it basically didn't happen. Nothing that do you think that the changes that are you're saying that it happened um,
1: a little bit slower in the Western communities, but faster kind oh. of the Middle Eastern communities? Do you think it has to do much more with women's live and they, uh, that they're also working and their needs and desires are becoming much more relevant into? Well, their- it-
0: it has to do with the change in in the uh, political economy from agriculture uh, to service and jobs and it has to do with education basically it 's the changing social economic political politics that has such a great effect on women. And of course, as you know, women in Iran have become very outspoken and women have changed so much over the last number of decades. And they're just not willing to put up with stuff. So there's many social, economic, political uh, changes that have taken place. And this is what influenced Western uh, marriage, but it it took place. I mean, when did industrialization in England occur? You know, centuries ago, things were changing over a much longer time. So perhaps they weren't as uh, dynamic, but now, you know, in the same community where where I work, people live like urban iranians they have urban like houses they live in nuclear families they have kitchens they have all the implements elect, you know electrical implements um they have bath uh, rooms in their own houses they don't go to the community bathhouse uh, women are expected Basically, to get their high school and they go on from there. And as you know, in Iran, women are form the largest percentage of uh, people in the university, 60% or so. So all of these things have really changed marriage. And the age of marriage, as you know, has gone way up, which means that women are no longer just a nine or 10 or 12 or 14 year old girl girl who can be molded to the household. No, they probably get married when they're 26, 28, even older, when they're kind of formed individuals, they have self-respect, they have education. Um, uh, So a marriage is changing. And now there's much more of an expectation that uh, people themselves will choose a partner based on their likes. They're, They're not willing never to to see their, you know, person they're engaged to. Uh, no, no, they have to have an effect on this. And actually, there's much more opportunity for women to get out in the world than there was uh, in that little village that existed. Uh, when I was there in 78 and 79, they go to school, they go to high school, they take buses by themselves, they drive, <laughs> you know, they're much more out in the world do you
1: see the same changes around middle east or is it mostly just in some countries like i know that you've also done work with pakistan but do you also in your research have you seen the same thing doing in saudi arabia or some of the arabic countries or definitely not afghanistan at this point but um what do you see this kind of shift in around middle east or uh, or some countries in middle east i know for example israel might not doesn't fit into that category so there might be whole in middle east but completely a different experience in in uh, those countries in a sense in women's live and how women have sh- shifted and therefore the structure of marriage has shifted
0: well, you know, Iran is is different in a lot of ways. Iran has had oil, so uh, and uh, you know this regime has made a big effort to um, increase, improve life living standards uh in rural areas among lower classes and as a result the middle class in iran has grown tremendously and middle class people want things they expect things and i think iran Uh, well, Turkey, of course, is is rather, um, you know, modernized, but but Iran, I think, in spite of this regime, has really become modernized, and they have the money to do it. I mean, one reason that... Uh, Stephanie Coons, who has written about uh, marriage, said that uh, marriage change in the United States is women had the financial, the freedom, the education to ask for more. And ironically, in Iran, Iranian women have much more resources to ask for more. And so, um, I think that Iran is rather in a different position. I know in Pakistan, there's a much smaller middle class. In Afghanistan, well, we can't even almost talk about Afghanistan. Um, So I think that Iran is, is kind of more I mean, the changes are taking place in other countries, but they're not changing as rapidly for as large a group of people. Uh, Saudi Arabia, we know that you know, there's a lot of, well, it's very hard for Saudi women. I mean, they've just gotten the right to drive a car recently. I mean, there's much more. You know, in spite of the fact of all of their wealth, the the very, very rigid, strong uh, powers just and, and, you know, can't and the population is smaller and they can't do as much. I think Iran is a little bit exceptional in the Middle East uh, and possibly you know, among some Asian countries as well. Uh, I mean, India, for <laughs> example, doesn't have as large a middle class as, as Iran now has. Right.
1: And, and I was going to actually uh, move forward with the Asian countries where also this system is is still a patriarchal system. Uh, when it comes to the family system, still the man you know, says the word, regardless of whether the women are very wealthy or they have uh, means of uh, their career and finances, still the structure of uh, the family system is very patriarchal in the Asian communities also, whether it's Japanese, Chinese, Indian, all of that. Uh, what are your uh, thoughts about that? Has there been a change um, Or a rapid change or not at all in the Asian communities as far as the marriages go?
0: No, it depends on which one it is. In India, yeah, there is a little bit of, there is some change, definitely. In Japan, apparently, as in Iran, the age of marriage of women is going up uh japanese women not you know are are starting to go back to work and this brings up an issue one big factor in the middle east and all the more so in iran is that women middle-class women are not going out into the labor market as much. They are finding power and they're negotiating within relationships, but their participation in the labor market is not as great. Uh, there, are, there are moves among women to get into informal uh, informal. Labor, such as uh, uh, shops in their own homes, beauty shops. Uh, uh, people I know uh, do that in, in the village or the community. It's now a uh, um, suburb of, of uh, Shiraz. Uh, they open beauty shops. They have little boutiques to sell clothes. They may drive children to their jo- uh, to their work, uh, to their schooling in Shiraz. So they find little way, uh, they do beauty things. Uh, some people I know have I a... I think you went, you went back to
1: Iran. I was talking about the Asian community. Oh,
0: well yeah there there are changes in the asian communities but um in india for example as i said the middle class is smaller it's basically when people get to be middle class that these things are changing and get more education in india there's so much more poverty so are you are you saying
1: that when you go from the when it, when it is about the lower socioeconomic class that they are more um Going back into what used to be in the traditional values, but from um, middle class and then upper class, they start changing because the women have more access to education, to finances, to owning businesses, uh, being able to open themselves up. And what do you see as far as the changes in the Western community? Do you, um, in your studies, see a lot of changes in the Western communities, whether it's European and United States? Oh, absolutely. Of marriage?
0: There's been so much change in America regarding relationships. For example, I was in college from uh, 1966, uh, wait a minute, no, 1962 to 1966. 1962 to 1966. And in high school, um, in high school. Um, we can hear you. Go ahead. In high school, um, you know, I mean, people it was very conservative, very conservative when I was in high school, very conservative when I was in high school. And, you know, there there was. A, I remember one case, a very scandalous case of a young lady, young girl who got pregnant and she had to move away. It was very conservative. And when I went to college, you know, I have to tell you that my father was a minister. My mother's father was a minister. You know, I grew up in a very religious, very socially conservative, but politically Progressive uh, family, and I went to college in the Midwest in South Dakota uh, to a Lutheran, a, a religious college, and there were separate dormitories, and we had, uh, you know, it was very conservative, very conservative, and you know, from 1966 through now. Things have changed so much. One reason is birth control. Another um, uh, reason uh, is. Uh, changing attitudes towards uh, marriage. I mean, back in my uh, college, people said, oh, yeah, girls go to college and in order to get their degree, their MRS degree, their Mrs. degree, and marriage was really necessary. And you just got married. Um, You know, now people place much more importance on the happiness of the marriage and the relationship and both um, in the United States and much more so and also now elsewhere, um, all of the social relations have become less important and the marital relation is much more important and expected to fulfill all of your needs, your best friend, your confidant, your counselor, your therapist. You know, you live together. And in America, people move around so much with their jobs. They can't take their family with them. So everything is on the marriage relationship. And so much is expected. And now this is happening elsewhere in the world, too. Um, it's, it, there's much more emphasis on the love, the cooperation. And as, as, um, as uh, Stephanie Kuhn uh, says, marriage has become much more fulfilling, but much more fragile, fragile. If you have all of those expectations from marriage, divorce is going to become very common. And a few decades ago in the United States, divorce was 50%, 50%. Now it's gone down because people get married later. People don't want to, they don't think that they've just got to form this family and have kids. No, they they want to develop themselves. Part of it, of course, is a, you know, it is to some degree, it's it's kind of self-centered, but um, women want to have more freedom. They don't want to be, you know, a housekeeper. (laughs) They want to have outside fulfillment. And now in the United States, even uh, mothers of young children often are going um, to work. And uh, so marriage has become much more highly, such expectations from it. Of course, the men are slower to make changes because they had it good. They had a servant, a sexual partner, someone who was supposed to obey them, someone who always was supposed to make them look good. I mean, they were in control.
1: They were really
0: they were in control
1: and now they the were in
0: control and now it's often wives who are wanting to get a divorce because they don't want to say oh honey you're so wonderful oh you everything you do is wonderful and just praise them and be prepared when they come home from work for with a beautiful face beautiful dinner beautiful children everything for the man Uh, you know women aren't willing to do that anymore. More. And in Iran, it's starting to be a little yeah. bit that way as well. Thank you and so the much. Middle
1: East. Thank you so much for your time, for your uh, research, for everything that you've done. One, of what I hear uh, mostly at the end of our conversation is that marriage is changing due to a lot of women's uh, shift in women. And, uh, you know, it's uh, and it's about to keep changing. So this complex um, institution is uh, it's constantly in a dynamic institution as we grow and our roles and and, uh, needs and desires change. Thank you so much, Mary Hagelin. And um, for everyone who is with us, uh, her latest research is published in the book. Uh, Iranian Romance in the Digital Age, edited by Janet uh, Janet Afari, Dr. Um, Doctor Janet Afari, and Dr. Jesslyn Foss. Thank you so much, Mary, for ge- giving us your time and being with us. It was a joy to have you and hear from all of your excellent research.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Zaini. Take care. For Bonnet <laughs> And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing
1: life for yourself and everyone around you. And until next week, bye bye.